Who are you? Say someone after the service today asked you that very question, how would you respond? Who are you? Maybe you would respond by giving your name. Maybe you would add some details about where you're from and your family. Perhaps you would tell them what you do for a living. So, for example, hi, I'm Andy. I'm from Scotland. I was born in Malawi, but I'm from Scotland. And I'm now living in London. I'm married to Marina. And we've got two children, Theo and Ellie. And I'm actually one of the ministers here at this church. Is that how you might respond if you were asked this question? Who are you with your name, with some details about where you're from, what you do, your family? Maybe after the question, after the service, you should ask someone today, you don't know, who are you? See how they respond. Well, I draw an attention to that question because that question is at the heart of this passage. John the Baptist is asked, who are you? But what we're going to see as we study verses 19 through 34 is that he doesn't answer the question in the way that we might answer it. Now, John the Baptist answers this question initially by saying who he isn't, not by saying who he is. And when he finally gets round to answering the question, he uses the Bible. He uses scripture to define who he is. And he states who he is in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist, as we studied the last time we were in John's gospel, John chapter 1, was sent from God to bear witness about Jesus. John was more concerned that people come to know who Jesus is than he was about making known who he is. I have a colleague in ministry, not Harrison, a colleague up in Scotland, and then, and he's a little business card. And inscribed in the back of the business card that he gives out, it says, if you meet me and forget me, you lose nothing. But if you meet Jesus and forget him, You lose everything. If business cards existed in the first century, that may be what John would have inscribed in the back of his. As we're going to see in this passage today, his ministry was all about pointing people to meet Jesus. So so as I said, we're continuing in the series in John's Gospel. We, we, we kicked off two weeks ago. We were in the prologue, verses 1 through 18. And we said the prologue was something like a foyer, an entrance hall. We're, we're at the threshold of John's Gospel. He gives us a glimpse into the architecture of this Gospel record. He introduces us to the main themes and the, the main individuals. And so uh, two Sundays ago in the morning, we looked at verses 1 through 5 and verse 14. John told us about the Word, a.k.a. the Lord Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with the Father, and the Word was God. In Him was life and light. He's the light of the world. And the Word became flesh. Now, John made these stunning 
statements and claims about who Jesus was. And so our minds were stretched. And then then, two Sundays ago in the evening, we, we came back and we looked at John 1, verses 6 through 13, which told us about John the Baptist and his ministry of bearing witness to the light. He was not the light. But anyone who came to believe in Christ would have the right to become children of God. Well, here's the thing. As we leave the prologue behind us and as we enter into the main body of this gospel, John the author recognizes that not everyone will immediately believe his stunning claims regarding who Jesus is. And to help persuade those of us who are skeptical about John's claims about who Jesus is, John the author begins the main body of his gospel by presenting us with a long line of credible witnesses who will give their own testimony regarding who Jesus is. Most of you know that in in courts of law, the testimony of two credible witnesses that can corroborate an event that has happened is enough evidence to convict someone of a crime. Well, as we begin working our way through John's gospel, we're going to be presented with at least seven different credible witnesses who will testify to us about who Jesus is. And they will prove beyond all reasonable doubt That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. One after another, they will show us that there is evidence enough, indeed more than enough, for us to put our faith in Jesus and by believing in him have life and life to its full. The first witness that John the author puts in the dock, as it were, is John the Baptist. And as we pick up things in verse 19 through 34, let me just say, we're going to divide it in two sections. Verse 19 through 28, John's testimony regarding himself. Then verses 29 through 34, John's testimony regarding who Jesus is. Look at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now I want us to establish three things. The when, the where, the what. Notice that in verse 19 it says, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem. Begs the question, when did they do this? Well, we'll let... The chapter, and in chapter 2, reveals this. This happened most likely in the first week of Jesus' public ministry. If you've got a Bible in front of you, you could glance down to verse 29, and it says, the next day, so we've got day 1, then day 2. Verse 35 again says, the next day. Verse 43 again says, then the next day. And in chapter 2 and verse 1 we read, and on the third day. 
meaning three days after the day referred to in verse 43. So six days are presented to us, nearly a full week. And all the scholars want us to know this is the first week of Jesus' public ministry. Now, these events certainly happened after Jesus was baptized and his temptation in the wilderness, which we were thinking about last week with Chad. But John opens his gospel with the first week of Jesus' public ministry. And just as an aside, from chapter 12 through chapter 20, John will close his gospel with the final week of Jesus' public ministry. So his gospel's bookended with two momentous weeks in the life of Christ. So that's the when. What about the where? Look down at verse 28. They, these religious leaders came from Jerusalem and they asked John this question, who are you? Verse 28 tells us, these things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Now, if you know John's gospel, you might know that there are two Bethanies. There's the Bethany near Jerusalem, where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live. And some of the key events in Jesus' ministry take place there. In fact, some of the final events. And then there's this Bethany. This Bethany is, is near the Jordan River. This Bethany is, is where John baptized, and this Bethany is in the wilderness. So again, if John's gospel is bookended with two weeks, it's also bookended with Bethany at the start and then at the end. So we've established the, the when, the where. Now look, let's look at what happened. It seems that word got out, and it reached the Jewish religious headquarters back in Jerusalem that there was a strange, you might say eccentric preacher exercising an unauthorized yet extraordinary ministry out in the wilderness. We know from the other gospel records that thousands of people from Jerusalem, Judea, all across Israel were going out to the wilderness to hear John the Baptist preach and even to be baptized by him. John the Baptist's ministry created a real star. It caused a great sensation in Israel. If John had lived in the 21st century, he would be trending on Twitter. He would be the most downloaded preacher on Apple Podcast. Now, the fascinating thing about John the Baptist was he wasn't your stereotypical rabbi, especially to, to look at. He wasn't traditional, respectable, in your refined rabbi way. Now, I would want to contend John the Baptist was the original hipster preacher. We know this, that he he, he had a long beard. Took a Nazareth vow. He, He wasn't going to chop off his beard. We know that he had interesting clothing. He wore animal skins. He he had a leather belt. He was distinct and different. And and he also had one of those diets that all hipsters seem to be interested in. His diet, though, was a a diet of locusts and and, and wild honey. Hardly a refined rabbi, right? 
And so this man's ministry is creating a real stir. And so the Jewish religious leaders back in headquarters send down a delegation. And just know that we're told the delegation was made up of priests and Levites. Now, John the Baptist's father was Zechariah. And Zechariah was a Levitical priest. And that means some of these guys knew who John the Baptist was. See, see in, in Scotland and, 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 and maybe even in England, some people will meet you and they'll say, I know who your father is. Uh, when they, 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 they know who you are in relationship to who you, your father is. So in Scotland, I know your father. Well, that could be said of John. Everyone knew Zechariah the priest who was once praying in the temple and he came out mute. And they probably would have known John the Baptist's name. Everybody was talking about him. So that sets up when this question, who are you, is asked. John doesn't need to tell them his name. He doesn't need to tell them his family background. He doesn't need to tell them where he's, them where he's from. He doesn't need to tell them what he does. They know. Now, when they ask him this question, who are you? From John's, the author's, the way he frames it in verse, it reframes John the Baptist's response, you get the sense this wasn't asked in a friendly manner. This was asked in a, in a direct, real, perhaps, overtones. One of the motifs that runs through John's gospel is trial. Jesus is often on trial. We'll hear John the Baptist. He's on trial. Look at how verse 20 opens. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. What did he confess? I am not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the long-promised one. I'm not the anointed king. Now, why did John respond like that? Well, because in Israel, things, everybody, it, it was just rife with messianic expectation. Just, just remember, Israel was under Roman rule, Roman oppression. All of God's people were longing for God to make good on his promise of old that he would raise up a mighty deliverer, the servant of the Lord, who would defeat God's people's enemies and he would usher in a kingdom of peace and righteousness and justice. And and to add to that messianic expectation, there was this man, John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness, repent. He was performing baptisms for for the repentance of the forgiveness of sins and he was saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. And everybody was talking about it. And so here comes this delegation. And their question is, who are you? And John discerns their drift. They're asking me, am I the Messiah? I am not the Messiah. Now, there's a deliberate contrast. John the Baptist says, I am not. Throughout this gospel, Jesus is going to say, I am. I am the bread of life. 
I am the resurrection. I am the good shepherd. John the, make, John the Baptist makes clear, I'm not the Messiah. So his interrogators try again, and this time they, they, they wonder to themselves, well, well, okay, you're not the Messiah, then perhaps you're some other figure. Are you Elijah? Now that's a good guess, right? Because there's John standing before them, and if you were to look at John, he actually dressed just like Elijah. I'm wrong. The first hipster preacher could not have been John the Baptist. It must have been Elijah. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather. So so they look at him and it's like, well, you remind us of Elijah. And, And there's another reason why John the Baptist reminded them of Elijah. His ministry was one of preparation. And in Malachi chapter 4, it spoke about Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And here's John the Baptist, and he's preaching, and people's lives have been changed as they, they're baptized and they're turning to walk in the ways of the Lord. And so you can imagine them thinking, well, maybe that's who you are. You're the fulfillment of this. And John the Baptist's response is, I am not. Now, Strictly speaking, he's telling the truth. He is not Elijah reincarnated. Remember, Elijah was taken up to heaven, and some of the expectation regarding Elijah was that he would come back reincarnated. But there is a real sense in which John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah and the power of Elijah. More about that later, but Jesus will even say he is the Elijah that is to come in the other Gospels, if you're willing to accept it. Okay, so so you're not Elijah, the delegation. Um, I have to re- reconcile. They, they, they try another angle. So, are you the prophet? So back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, there was one spoken about a prophet who would be raised up by God and he was to be listened to. Now that prophet finds its fulfillment in Jesus, and so Elijah's response is, nope. John the Baptist's response is, nope. Not me. It's interesting. He's a man of few words. I'm not the Christ. Not me. No. Now you can imagine this religious delegation being absolutely exasperated. Come on! Like, you're not the Messiah, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet. They've got nothing substantial to turn to Jerusalem with, and so out of sheer frustration they say, John, the Baptist, what do you say about yourself? Like, who on earth are you? And it's here we get John the Baptist's testimony regarding himself. And what he does is brilliant. He says, okay, you want to know who I am? I am the voice. Of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. If you want to know who John the Baptist is, he defines who he is in accordance with Scripture. This prophecy was written 700 years before he was born. And John the Baptist says, I am the voice. I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. I am the forerunner 
to the Messiah. I'm the one who prepares the people for Jesus. I'm the one who will say, as it says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9, Behold, here is your God. Now, we've had a lot of information and very little application, so let me try and apply some of this to us. And whether you're a Christian or not, you can learn from John the Baptist. We live in a culture that is neurotically obsessed with identity. The hot topic right now for this season feels like identity politics. Application point number one, know who you are. And if you want to know who you are, Scripture informs us of who we are. When I was a wee boy, my mum used to say to me, Andrew, read the Bible because the Bible is the only book you'll ever read and it will read you. You want to know who you are and you're not a Christian? Read the Bible. And you'll discover that you were made in the image of God, endowed with dignity, value and worth. You've got a mind to think. A heart to feel. Discover that you were made to live in relationship with God, but because of the fall, because of our first pair of sin, we've all inherited a sinful nature. And the Bible defines us as sinners in desperate need of a saviour. And if you're a Christian and you want to know who you are, read the Bible. Discover who you are in Christ. Your, your, your real identity. Discover that you're loved, chosen, adopted, redeemed, lavished with grace, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, heir with Christ, more than a conqueror. Know who you are, according to what the Scriptures say. But secondly, know who you're not. I am not the Christ. Now, none of you are sitting there thinking, well, I would ever say that I'm the Christ. Hold up. How many of you are tempted to live with a Messiah complex? You want to know everything. You want to fix everything. You want to be everywhere at once. You know, living in London, right? Just moving here has given me a little taste for a life that, that, that I really enjoy. But I want to be everywhere at once. I want to know everything. I want to, I, it's just a city that just fills you with a sense of, I want everything. And maybe that's not your struggle. Maybe you think, ah, that's not me. Well, maybe your Messiah complex manifests itself in this. You want to give everyone the impression you've got the perfect life. You want to give everyone the impression that you've got it all together. They don't need a saviour, that you're the Messiah. Know who you are not. You are not the Messiah. And then, third point of application, know your purpose. John the Baptist, the reason why he could speak with few words and turn the spotlight always away from himself was because he knew his purpose. His purpose was to bear witness to Jesus. Now, I realise that every time you speak about witnessing... People can hear it in a one-dimensional way and they think, witnessing means me going and having to tell everyone the gospel. You know what's interesting? In the New Testament, 
That is one aspect of witnessing. But there's a much richer, fuller understanding of witnessing. Part of witnessing involves being asked questions and being able to give an answer. Notice that John the Baptist bore witness to Jesus here in light of the fact that other people came and asked him questions. Do you live a life that's in any way distinctly different that someone would be tempted to ask you a question about the hope that is within you? First Peter, always be prepared to give a reason, an answer for the hope. That is within you. The New Testament assumes that Christians bear witness when others ask them questions about their faith. Now, as we as we think about John's purpose, the, the, the scene changes, and in, in, in the sense that there's a group of Pharisees within this delegation, and they, 25, they ask John, "Why are you back? You're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet." And there's this a question, of course, of authority. John the Baptist, on what basis are you baptizing people? And John the Baptist's response is, I baptize with water. And these are Pharisees. Anyone who is baptized is baptized with water. What's your point? John is actually saying to them, my point is, my God-given role is to prepare the way for Jesus. It is to point people to Jesus. I'm a signpost to Jesus. The act of baptism is an enacted message not to draw attention to John the Baptist, but to draw attention to Jesus, the one who is so much greater than John the Baptist. Hence the reason John the Baptist says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of his sandals I'm not worthy to untie. John the Baptist takes the attention in in, in giving his answer away from himself once again and puts it right back on Jesus. The shining quality of John the Baptist's life is his humility. Now, one of the ways that he showcases his humility is that he decreases so that Christ might increase And it's staggering and stunning what he says. He says this, I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. Do you know the lowest, the least slave in a house, it was their job to untie the sandals of their master. And John the Baptist says, listen, see when it comes to Jesus, I'm not worthy to do that. I'm unworthy because he is so worthy. He is so great. I need to ask you and myself a question. Do we see the greatness of Jesus? John chapter 1, we were looking at the word. We were beholding the, the greatness of Jesus. Here again, John the Baptist is telling us, corroborating John the author's story, Jesus is great. He is the one who is worthy of all of our praise, worthy of all of our worship, worthy of all of our lives. So that's John the Baptist's testimony regarding himself. Let's quickly move on to John the Baptist's testimony regarding Jesus, who Jesus is. And as we transition to look at this testimony, we move from one day to the next day, day two of week one of Jesus' public ministry. The next day, 
John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. It's interesting, in, in, in verse 19, the, the, the priests and the Levites, they come towards him. Now, it's Jesus coming toward John. And the first thing out of, the first word out of John's mouth is, behold. Turn your attention, turn your gaze upon Jesus. Look to him. Now, now, now what he says next is, it's fascinating. He says, behold the Lamb of God. Now, if you've grown up in church, that's a stunning statement that maybe you've become so familiar with that it doesn't shock you. And if you've not grown up in church, this is a strange statement. What comes to your mind when you think of a lamb? Cute little animal that leaps with joy in fields in springtime. That's what comes to my mind. But if you'd asked a Jew, what comes to your mind when you think of a lamb? Straight out of their lips, sacrifice. How so? And they would tell you, well, okay, Genesis 22. There's a story of Abraham and Isaac. And Abraham is to sacrifice his son Isaac. So he takes him up Mount Moriah. As they're walking up Mount Moriah... Isaac says, Dad, the, the fire's here. The wood is here. Where's the lamb? Abram says, the Lord will provide the lamb. They get to the top of the mountain. Abram sets up the altar, ties Isaac to it, lifts up the knife, just about to slay him. Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Now I know you fear me. Because he was willing to sacrifice his one and only son. Language which will be picked up by John in John chapter 3. God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only son. And there, behold, caught in the thicket was a ram. Now notice that. It wasn't a lamb. It was a ram. And the big question that Genesis 22 asks is, where is the lamb? Then there's Exodus, that the Jew might tell you. Then you know the story of the Exodus, the night we left Egypt? You know the Passover? We had to take a lamb, sacrifice it, take its blood, paint it on our door so that the angel of death would pass over so the firstborn would not be killed. The heart of our salvation is a lamb. Oh, and by the way, every single day, mummy and daddy would have to go to the temple and morning and evening sacrifice, lambs would be offered. Isaiah 53, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and like a sheep before his shearers, he remained silent. For a Jew steeped in scripture, lamb speaks of sacrifice. So here's John the Baptist and he says, behold the lamb. Behold the one who's come to give his life as a sacrifice for sin. Behold the one who's the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament Shadows, types. Behold the Lamb. And notice this. The Lamb of God. John 1 verse 1. This one is God. He's sent from God. He's the perfect, spotless, innocent, without blemish, without defect. 
He is the atoning lamb who can bear away the sin of the world. When Jews took lambs to the temple, it was on their own behalf. For, for them, the Jews, Jesus, Jesus is the sacrifice whose blood can remove the stain of sins for people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. So John says, behold the lamb. That's the first testimony he gives regarding Jesus. But then, and, and, and I need to ask you this question. If you're here and you're not a Christian, have you ever looked to the lamb? Have you looked to the lamb for salvation? Your sins can be taken away. He bears them away by the shed blood on the cross. And if you are a Christian and you've looked to them for salvation... Your sins have been taken away. Know that you can join the anthem of the angels and the people in heaven who sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain for us. Here's the second thing John the Baptist testifies to us about Jesus. He says in verses 30 that Jesus is the one who is pre-existent. Verse 30 says, This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now, John the Baptist and Jesus, they were born around the same time, but John the Baptist was born first. Jesus came after him. Probably six, uh, uh, Elizabeth was six months pregnant when Mary came to visit with her good news. So in that sense, Jesus did come after John and John says that. But then he says, but he ranks before me. That is, he's greater than me. He's superior to me. And then he says, but it's because he is before me. He's saying Jesus is the pre-existent eternal one that John, the author, said in chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. Notice this. Their, their testimonies corroborate. And then he says in verse 34, and by the way, he's the son of God. I've seen and born witness to this fact that he is the son of God. John the Baptist's second testimony about Jesus is that he is the eternal son of God. That is, he's the one who is in relationship with the father. He was with the father in the beginning. John's gospel, John the author says at the end of his gospel, he wrote this gospel so that people would believe that Jesus is the Christ and the son of God. Again, their testimonies corroborate. Now the final testimony that John the Baptist gives regarding Jesus is that he's the anointed one. Now, I don't know if you noticed this. If you were a diligent reader, you did twice, twice. John the Baptist said, I did not know him, speaking about Jesus. And if you think about that statement, that's really strange. Because John and Jesus, they were blood relatives. When Mary had good news, she shared it with Elizabeth. Now, nowhere in the Gospels are we told this, so I am speculating, but it's highly likely that John and Jesus, John the Baptist and Jesus played as kids, hung out perhaps as teenagers, gathered at family reunions. So when he says, I did not know him, he's not saying, I I didn't know him, I played with him. He's not saying, I never met him before. So what does he mean, I did not know him? I didn't know he was the Messiah. 
When did he come to know that Jesus was the Messiah? Well, John the Baptist tells us. See, if you look at verse 33, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water, that's God, chapter 1, verse 6, said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, that this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And the sense here is, John the Baptist was praying to God, asking God, God, how will I ever know who the Messiah is? How will I know who the one I'm supposed to bear witness to? And God said to him, he who you see, the Spirit of God, descend and remain. He, he's the one who can baptize with the Holy Spirit. He's the anointed one. He's the one that the servant songs of Isaiah speak of, the one in whom the Spirit of God will rest and remain. In the Old Testament, people who were priests, who were kings, who were prophets, were anointed by the Holy Spirit for their task. The Messiah would be the one who the Spirit of God would rest upon, remain upon, and he would baptize people with the Holy Spirit. So three things John bears testimony regarding Jesus. He's the Lamb of God. He's the eternal Son of God. He's the anointed one. That is, he's the Messiah. He's the chosen one. You need to decide. Are you going to listen to the testimony of John the Baptist? Are you going to believe who Jesus is? Because in believing in him, you will have life life in its full, your forgiveness, your sins forgiven. Now, as I wrap this up, I just want to add one other thing to our understanding of John the Baptist and yourself. Jesus said one of the most remarkable statements regarding John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. See, in in this world, at work, Amongst your peers, one of the things you long for, one of the things I long for, we offer, isn't it? Approval, commendation. Imagine you were commended as the one. No one. Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. What a commendation. John the Baptist is the greatest of all of the Old Testament prophets. He's the turning point between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's the greatest because he was the one who got to announce the Messiah, say, behold, here is your God. He's the one who got to see him with his eyes. He's the one who got to point other people to him. But Jesus didn't stop when in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, saying that. He then went on to say this. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That refers to you and I who are Christians. We're greater than John the Baptist. How how is that possible? The least in the kingdom of heaven. How can they be greater than he? Because John the Baptist, he didn't get to see what you and I have seen. He died before Christ died on the cross. He died before Christ baptized the church at Pentecost with the Holy Spirit. 
He bore witness to Christ's coming. He bore witness to who Christ would be. You and I, today, it's our privilege to point back and point people to who Jesus is and to all that he has done. You want a commendation. You want approval. You want, you want someone to say a statement of you. Take Christ's own commendation. You who are the least of the kingdom, you're greater than John the Baptist. I say that for this reason. If you want an incentive, if you want a, a motivation to go and bear witness to Jesus, know that Jesus delights it. He delights in John the Baptist because he bore witness to himself. And he delights it when us, his children, who have seen and beheld the cross, who have been baptized with the Holy Spirit, live to bear witness to him. If you meet me and forget me, you lose nothing. If you meet Jesus, forget him, you lose everything. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're speechless. Because we've just been standing, sitting, listening to the testimony of John the Baptist regarding your son and his greatness. And in Jesus' presence, we feel so unworthy. Not worthy to untie his sandals. And yet, because he's borne our sin away, because we've come and believed in his name, we have the right to become children of God and we've been made worthy partakers of the kingdom of God. And so we come and we just say thank you. God, we come and, and we're speechless because we hear how Jesus spoke of John the Baptist his greatness, and yet we hear a statement about the least in the kingdom is even greater. Lord, so often we forget how you view us because so often we're so unfamiliar with what your word says. Would you shape our lives and our thinking by your word? Would we see ourselves and our identity in light of what your word declares? Help us to know who we are. And God, we we, we are sorry when we poor witnesses, when we fail to bear witness, but we pray that you would grant opportunities in our lives where people would ask questions of us, the hope that is within us. And that you, by your spirit, would give us the words to say when we speak of the the hope prepare us now in Christ's precious name. Amen.